0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and my guest today is um, someone that I've been looking forward to talking to and having on my podcast for a long, long time, and that's Min Jin Lee, all of you out there I am sure have read Pachinko and if you haven't you better turn off this podcast <laughs> and start reading it immediately. Don't do that. <laughs> it's really one of the most you know phenomenal novels um that I have read uh in a long time. And not only that, but it also if my kids were in preschool it would also help put my kids through preschool because it has sold remarkably and it, it's even still on the bestseller lists mm-hmm. um, and it's worth every hour that you spend. Um, we'll talk a little bit about what Pachinko is about but um, uh, we're just coming, we're at Books and Books and we just came. Min is in Miami because she appeared at the Brickle Avenue Literary Society and gave a talk which provoked a standing ovation and uh, Min is one of the most generous funny, um, lovely writers that um, in my 36 years have ever come across. And it's not just me. Everybody who meets her says the very same thing. So, Min, welcome to The Literary Life.
1: Mitchell, thank you for having me on The Literary Life, a life I want. <laughs> and it's A so life you have. Well, it's amazing to have it because I never thought I would. But it's really cool to be in Miami right now, especially because I'm not in... Boston or New York, where it's freezing. And I just came from Seoul, which was even colder than Boston and New York. So I keep thinking this can't be real, this weather.
2: <laughs> it, it must be a sort of very strange kind of uh, refraction you're going through from Seoul to Miami, Boston, New York. What were you doing in Seoul in this last I was trip?
1: researching my next book. Right. But, but going back to the weather, which I don't mean to do, but what ends up happening when you're in those climates is that you don't realize how clenched your body is and you come to Miami, all of a sudden your, your shoulders start to relax because you're going, oh, I don't have to worry about being blown away. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really great.
2: Well, this is a beautiful time. We're in January, it's a beautiful time in Miami. It's a time to be here. Uh, you can stay in your own climb during the summer.
1: Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Where you can be not clenched right. No,
1: no, New York is so wonderful that you put up with the nonsense.
2: Mayne has written free food for millionaires. She's written pachinko. And you just heard her say she's doing research on her third novel. And you see these three as a trilogy. That's right. Talk about that a little bit.
1: So I've always wanted to write a trilogy about the diaspora, the experience of people being ejected, expelled, and leaving a nation because you have historical persecution. So the first book is Free for Millionaires, which is about Koreans in America what happened when the Koreans ended up in America and what it means to end up in New York, which is very different than ending up in Los Angeles because it's kind of a newer place for Koreans to be. And it's about my critique of the inhumanity of capitalism. So I wanted to talk about class and money and race and what it means to think that you have all these dreams and then you start to understand the underpinnings of Wall Street. So that's brief for Millionaires. And what it means to have all these class wishes and consumerist wishes. So pachinko is Koreans in Japan. And I wanted to understand identity and what that means to try to live with dignity as a people when there's structural racism, which doesn't allow you to become a citizen. And what that means for generations. And even today when Koreans are really treated as second-class citizens in many ways, especially socially.
2: That was what was so revelatory for me when I read pachinko it's not something readily known I don't think among the general population we hear a lot about the Japanese and the Chinese being at odds with one another but I didn't really understand or know of that history of the Japanese occupation in Korea particularly well
1: it's not taught anywhere no one talks about it Even the Koreans don't like to talk about it because I think when you feel that you were colonized, it's embarrassing, right? Like you're a defeated nation, you're emasculated. And I think that because of those reasons, people don't wish to talk about it. And when I thought about writing that work, I didn't think that it would be well-received. I certainly didn't think there'd be this interest in this book. I didn't think it was going to get published.
2: Did you think... When you wrote Free Food for Millionaires, did you think of a trilogy at that point? Or was it after you wrote Free Food for Millionaires that you thought, well, this fits one, one volume, and then I can do go another direction? Was it a trilogy um, thought out in advance?
1: You know, no. No. Because I knew that I was going to write about the Koreans. And I knew that I was interested in the diaspora. But I didn't think that I'd ever publish.
2: Because right, you had written two other novels before. Right. right.
1: I didn't think my first book would get published. So what ended up happening was that I just figured I'll write my first book. The one that ended up being, becoming published, Free for Millionaires, was my third manuscript. And when that got published, I just felt so grateful. I didn't think I'd be allowed to even conceive of a trilogy. Because in a way, you have to give yourself permission to think that you could have that space. Right. In, in the world of to have a literary life, I didn't think I could have that. I didn't think I could ever be a writer.
2: Talk, well, we'll skip around and talk about that because you were in, you were a lawyer. Yeah. Basically. And I you, am a lawyer, yeah. And, you, and, and we'll talk about the third book, but it probably has to do, the reason why you became a lawyer may have to do with something having to do with the third book. I mean, education, as we talked about earlier, is so important. To Koreans, particularly, uh, particularly Koreans and the diaspora, right? And so the idea of becoming a writer was probably not something your parents took very enthusiastically. When you
1: no, they were not enthusiastic thing. about it. But also, I couldn't really be enthusiastic about it. It takes courage to it's, say you want to be an artist. It's the most unstable life. And even just last year, when my husband lost his job for nine months, the whole time I kept on thinking, I made a big mistake. Like everybody was right. And actually everybody is right. Being a writer is really unstable. There's it's really difficult financially and also in America, especially America when we don't have health insurance that's available unless you're attached to a job that provides it, you're in big trouble. Right. So I often caution young people who want to be writers because I want them to be careful about taking care of their overhead. Like Grace Paley, what a genius. She said you should have if you want to be a writer, you should have a low overhead. She's right. <laughs> yeah.
2: And she had a very low overhead, right? Right. <laughs> you
1: know, she's basically like almost a communist and right. like, yeah, you kind of make sense.
2: Well, so you went to college not I guess a socialist, you, I'm sorry. You didn't yeah. you didn't become an MFA, so you did not get I don't an have MFA. an MFA or any
1: of that? I majored in history. It were sounded you, like were, a very solid Were you major. writing
2: in college? or I, I was mean, writing
1: and publishing in college, but I was writing mostly nonfiction. So right. my first love is actually nonfiction. I write a ton of nonfiction, but I haven't written anything book length because I don't have that right now. But I really connect with nonfiction. And again, I think it's because like I thought that sounds solid. It's based on reality. And I didn't start writing fiction until the end of my college career and then I went to law school and I thought you know what that was just kind of college wishfulness (laughs) but girls like me don't become writers
2: but there was a gnawing inside of you or something that
1: oh absolutely was it the
2: disillusionment with the law or was it the fact that you needed you needed the juice from being a writer and that caused you to leave
1: I think I wanted to read certain kinds of books that didn't exist so, I can honestly say Perfect. that I write books that don't exist. Perfect. So, and I, but I didn't think anybody else wanted to read them. So, I didn't think there would ever be any possible way to be profitable and to sustain yourself as a writer. That's even like a fantasy. Well, talk about your,
2: your dad's reaction. You, you had talked about it earlier. Oh, yeah. I mean, he,
1: he just thought that it was not a good idea. And he said, you know, you really. He was, he's really clever because he said, um, you're going to watch all your friends be able to s- take care of themselves, and I can't pr- provide for you. And how are you going to feel when you're living in a really horrible apartment, <laughs> you can't afford to go do anything, and all your friends are doing really well? How are you going to feel? And I have never, ever thought that way until he said it. And I thought, okay, you know, I, I guess – I have to put a roof over my head, so I guess I'll go be a lawyer. And I was for two years, and I got really sick, so it made things really clear.
2: Right. So during your illness, you then started writing as well at that time? Yeah.
1: Point. So when I was 16, I was diagnosed with chronic hepatitis B as a carrier. I was asymptomatic, so it was just something that kind of was dormant in my body. In college, I developed it, because it triggered, you, you get triggered. And with you,
2: stress? Or-
1: right. Or with exhaustion for anything. So I got really sick in college, and then I knew that I had it, and then I got well again, but it wasn't like I could get cured because it was chronic. And then in, as a lawyer, I was working these crazy hours, and I thought, you know, I don't think I can do this anymore because I'll get sick because my doctor in college had told me that I would get liver cancer in my 20s and 30s. Right. So I always knew that I had this sort of timeline, so I was very wary of what time meant. And then by the time I quit, I thought, you know, if I die, and by the way, I'm totally fine now. I'm totally fine. But I thought, if I die young, I I want to do something that I want to do.
2: That's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the goal of everyone is to take. I guess. You took a road less traveled, but you did it. You had to confront that very early.
1: Oh Fortunately, yeah. Fortunately,
2: I mean, oh yeah. Know, I, I, I know a lot of lawyers who are very unhappy as they get older, wishing. That they had done what you had done.
1: Oh, completely. You know, so. Completely. But even now, don't you think about mortality? Like, I mean, I think about mortality in such a way that's. I know course. this is a very cheerful podcast. <laughs> I think about mortality and I kind of think, okay, well, everybody has a clock. But when I was younger, my clock was very short. Right. And I don't want to be Pollyanna about this because being sick is horrible. Like, but if there's any gift in it, is that you do appreciate. The breath in your body
2: the fact that you had it when you were young Yes. I mean I'm now seeing it with my own parents who are elderly and seeing it as they're older yeah they're not yeah there won't be any cure right <laughs> you no know, in that right. sense and you realize that life it's really it's about this it's about yeah. the, us talking on a podcast it's about a journey that we're taking and, and being present and it's about being present and it's about being as getting as, as much richness out of life as one can get out of life and if in your journey it's about being a writer it somebody else it might be about doing something else but if you're not true to that kind of inner voice you're gonna be at the end of your life and you're gonna go, what <laughs> What <Yeah.
1: laughs> and I I do feel compassion for people who don't have that but I see how much they suffer in all of their material splendor and ease, the lack of purpose, the lack of why, and I don't know how you solve that except to know while you have this time, however long it is, what will you do? How will how will you be useful in the yeah. world? I think about that all the time. Not like how I will be remembered, but how will I be useful right this minute?
2: Well you've you have and, and We'll talk. A li- I want you to talk a little bit about what you talked about earlier because it talks about that. You talk about the writer, how writing can cause peace and what that is all about um, and how a writer can be useful within the moment by the stories that they tell. Can you talk a little bit about sure. that?
1: Sure. I think the connection between peace and war for me is that historically I come from a family. My father was a refugee from the Korean War. And I've always been so aware of the fact that he lost his entire family at the age of 16. And I kind of, I always think about these sort of shadowy people who must be somewhere else, who I could not meet because of history. And having said that, I think about the fact that I've always grown up in peace. And in this time of peace, I've been allowed to do so many things because I'm not fighting a war. I'm not worried about finding food. I'm not worried about. Clothing. I'm not worried about an unstable government. Well, except for right this minute when the government <laughs> has been shut down, but
2: well, it may be unstable after it opens up again too.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I think all these disruptions that are out of our control. When you don't have them, you can have the opportunity to read and write or to do anything else that's creative and to make things. I don't know if people are so aware of that, and that's unfortunate. Again. When you have historical tragedy, visit your life. Touch it in any way, even as the next generation. What does that mean when you don't have that historical tragedy? And what a gift it is. And what are we supposed to do? I feel a lot of responsibility.
2: Hence, writing about the diaspora. Writing about and, and making people sensitive to that. Particularly in our period that we're living through right now. Uh, I'm, I know that you share this with me that one of the most horrific things right now is the fact that, um, you know, that people's stories of immigration were made up of, of immigrants. You, you probably, you know, at the, at the event we had, people were telling their stories to you about yeah. their own immigration and, you know, their own sense of, of being other in some sense or another. Uh, but right now we have, we have people who are denigrating that. It's just a, a horrible Uh, bastardization of what we all ought to be doing, which is just the very opposite of that. We ought to be learning each other's stories and loving each other's stories and finding hope in each other's stories.
1: And we need each other's stories. Well, you said
2: something beautiful about I never had heard it that way when you said, I am, you know, I've been this and I've been that because of your reading.
1: Absolutely. Through literature, I have felt like I am this thing that I could never have been, that I am differently abled or I'm indigenous or I'm African American, things that I was not and I am not and yet because of literature and because of empathy, You are rooting for this group. You are rooting for this person and that person's story. But I think very often all of us are walking around like, why? Why did this happen? Or what am I going to do? And I think part of the job of the writer is to understand narrative and to create narrative and to give the reason why. Great books always tell you why. And it makes us less crazy. (laughs) We need that. And I read for more than any other thing, not entertainment. I read for more than any other thing, insight. And when I meet a person who's insightful, I feel like, oh, I want to be around you because I need you. I need your insight because I don't have all the answers, but you have some of the answers. You've thought about something deeply. And to have the time and the, the time, it's such a luxury to really think deeply about life and to have insight. And if you're even fortunate enough to write it down in a book, <laughs> I'm like, thank you. Thank well, you so much.
2: You, also what you do, which is... Not an easy thing to do is that you are so in tune with your voice mm. that what you're saying through your work is so clearly um, it's so clearly spoken. Oh,
1: thank you. Know, you know, I
2: mean, you write with such a clarity that you know that um, that escapes so many other writers. And the irony of that is the story you told about how you didn't talk for yeah. the first part of your life. Which is really interesting. I mean, the only other person I've heard speak about that was... Um,
1: oh, Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou.
2: Yeah. She's the only one that I've ever heard talk... Uh, Maya Angelou is the only one I've ever heard talk about not speaking for a good part of her life.
1: Yeah, I had such a hard time talking. And I think I had some sort of learning disability, which is undiagnosed. I mean, learning disabilities are something that we talk about now openly because they are real <laughs> and we have names for them. So when I was growing up... I was really super tall and in Korea I was always seated at the back of the classroom because he did it in size order and I just checked out like I was that kid in the back who wasn't paying attention and I would get up from my chair and I'd walk back and forth and I'd always get in trouble and I didn't even understand why and I didn't have any friends I was very odd <laughs> I-, I don't know what you call that maybe you might call it ADHD but it doesn't make that much sense because I was able to concentrate on other things. So that was Korea. And then I came to the U.S., and my sisters and I, none of us spoke English, but both my sisters, my older and my younger one, were able to be placed in special progress, which was considered the smart class in right. in Queens. And I kind of languished in what was considered the dumb class for several years. And I remember hearing my parents talk about how I was slow. Like, there was something wrong with me, and I was kind of slow. And... I remember thinking, well, I'm sure they're right. My parents are never wrong. <laughs> but I remember thinking, I better work really hard because I'm slow. And... Um, and silent. Boy, were they
2: wrong. Well, thank you. So but- so is it literally that you were quiet or you would just...
1: I would talk in my family. Right. But with other kids, I, I couldn't understand social dynamics. Right. So when you had several girls talking, I didn't know how to step up to that group and enter the conversation. And I think if I didn't read a lot of fiction in which I read basically patterns. I mean, fiction is basically patterns and structure. And they explain social dynamics. So if you're having an organizational behavior issue, fiction is actually a great model and a great case study. And I guess what I ended up doing is I just inhaled enough patterns that I started to understand why people did things. So maybe I have Asperger's. I don't really know. (laughs) (laughs) But... Fiction really saved me.
2: Well, let's go back to when you talked about uh, the fact that you read for, you know, deep dives into what people know. Yeah, and I want wisdom. about when wisdom. So, who are you reading now? That give not, you know, just who who are the go-to people that you go to for that kind of wisdom? Oh,
1: George Eliot. I mean, she's the best. She's the smartest writer I can think of in terms of the English novel. I can't think of anybody smarter. Tolstoy, another one. Great insight. Compassion. Who else is really just right up there in terms of that level? Balzac? Does,
2: well his stories absolutely... I mean absolutely. you
1: can't you can't touch cousin Bet in terms of understanding how women think. And this is a man. But boy did he understand women. And what an ugly woman feels like. Cousin Bed is a great story in that. I, when you th- when I think about the publishing industry, the book that always makes me understand it is Lost Illusions by Balzac. It doesn't have a happy ending, but it does explain what patronage system is. Like, I remember reading it thinking, oh my goodness, this is really horrible. And then now that I'm really up close and personal and I kind of understand how the sausage is made, I'm thinking, oh, this is why it's such a hard thing for people to break into. Because it's, it's actually harder to be a successful writer than I think it is to be. Well, how
2: weird was it for you to do um, the first novel, which was critically acclaimed, mm-hmm. but it probably it clearly did not have the sales of Pachinko. No. And then no. Pachinko ca- comes out, and uh, the hardcover might not have done exactly what they had hoped right. for it to do. No,
1: it was considered disappointing. But
2: then it caught, <laughs> on, like, then it caught on like wildfire. Yeah. So what... What emotion was that? I mean, how did you... And, and it's relatively fresh, right? Because yeah. it's just a couple of years now. No, it's happening right happened. this minute. Right. It,
1: it just hit the bestseller list again this week after being off for a few weeks. And I remember when it happened, I just, you just feel grateful. And it's like, oh, this doesn't happen to other really good books. It happened to yours. You're just so freaking lucky. And you walk around... And I think that in a way, it's good to think of it that way because if you felt entitled to it you'd be kind of crazy and stupid because you can't always connect the quality of a book with its commercial success I mean you would know that better than anybody it's, it's right the,
2: it's the basic axiom of publishing and book selling
1: right we're all like we're all a bunch of smart people in a room scratching our heads going how yeah, <laughs> why did this happen how so and then you can meet people who are just like incredibly good at networking and then you read their book and you're going, No. Yeah. So that's there, the other there, thing. I
2: always tell everybody it's an art, it's not a science. Right. There's no way to go from point A to point B and it's also to the make timing. a book work, it's timing. And ultimately, ultimately, right. ultimately, 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 it's about getting the book into the right person's hand. Right. So that person will read it and tell somebody else about it. And it literally is this weird book by book by book kind of thing. Because we in the publishing industry don't have enough money to run a Super Bowl commercial about a book right. necessarily. And unless you're a brand named author who's you know, it's it's there are different kind you know, unless it's completely commercial and it's completely just sort of escapist and they're just doing it for that um, it's really hard. And you even know? then. And even then and it does The best laid plans. How many <laughs> right. We've read stories about someone getting a gigantic advance and the book just falls flat. Right. But, so, but there needs to be something in the book. And with Pachinko, I think from readers that I know and, and you you know the amount of book clubs that are reading it and all of that, it is so meaty and there's so much to, to really talk about, discuss, think about. I always read in a very cathartic way. I read, I live, I'm the characters that I'm reading about, even though it's yeah. Korean and it's Japan. Well, you're Korean. I'm Korean, <laughs> just like what you said before. Right. But at the same time, their struggles and problems become mine. So working them out at the end of, you know, at the end of a really great novel, I feel a sense of release of some sort.
1: Well, that's what Aristotle said. Aristotle and Poetics. Aristotle like, and me. Aristotle <laughs> and you. He was like, what'll Mitchell say? <laughs> no, I mean, the whole point of Poetics is that the way a tragedy works is that if the audience feels a sense of catharsis, of course, of course. then you will have succeeded in telling the story because the audience has this feeling and it must come out. Yeah. And that's why we suffer is because these emotions are held back and we don't even know how to put names on them. And I think that uh, whether or not the reader feels a sense of catharsis, and then if they learn something...
2: That's even better. That's incredible. And so, I I think with Pachinko, it it was that. It was word of mouth, and it was booksellers getting behind it, and it it just was uh, this beautiful, uh, you know, this happy accident in in some kind of interesting way. Oh, I'm so grateful, but
1: I do think the bookseller piece to it can't be in any way diminished, because for a book like mine, with a foreign title a foreign name, and an abstract cover. (laughs) That's three doors that a reader has to enter. Someone needs to translate. And that was the bookseller. I know that my career was entirely made. And everybody agrees it was independent booksellers. Because people actually read it and explained it. I mean, this cover is more obvious. But still, if someone didn't take the time to read it and share it, it's not going to happen. No. I mean, you can spend the Super Bowl commercial. I don't and think it won't th- happen. Well, it won't it. have the tail. right? Because Ta- so,
2: so talk about, talk a little bit about the third one. The, tri- uh. the third in the trilogy.
1: American Hagwon and Hagwon, H-A-G-W-O-N, Hagwon, is the Korean word for a for-profit tutoring company. So imagine, let's say, Kumon or right. Stanley Kaplan or Princeton Review. like Those, are, those would be considered Hagwons. Because you send your kid to learn something. Koreans start in South Korea, start their children, 85% of children under the age of four start going to Hagwan's. That's before kindergarten.
2: That's remarkable. I mean, that's astonishing.
1: Yeah. So you will not meet a child from Korea. Who does not go and these home. are private, so these are private, so, so they, have kid, they have to be paid for. They have to be paid for. money has to be found. Immediately,
2: it us. Cross, causes a class distinction. If you, but even if you're a poor so person, you're going to hock whatever you can yes, hock in order to. Yes, you're going to sell blood. Wow,
1: you will do whatever you need to do to send your kid, because you cannot have your kid fall behind. So you're, you could be this kind of ajma, this woman who works and sells some sort of snack on the street, a street vendor she will have to find two to three hundred dollars a month to send her kid to a hagwon to learn english let's say i visited these places last week when i was in korea right and that place will this tutoring company the hagwon will pick up your child after school and your kid will learn english twice a week and you're paying for this privately because you don't want your kid to fall behind
2: is it duplicated outside of Korea yes. where there are Korean communities?
1: Yes. So in America, in Australia, in the Philippines, in England, in Germany, wherever you have Koreans, you have hagwans. Not now once you have the diaspora aspect of it, not every Korean in Germany or Australia will send their kid to hagwans. In LA, for example, in certain parts of LA, all the Korean kids go to hagwans. Do they? Mm-hmm. Wow. Even today because so I visited you, them so your so them. your
2: research now as you did with pachinko you did an amazing amount of research oh, i read you. that the i think i read somewhere that the idea for this was back in like 1990 yeah
1: 1989 so in
2: 1989, it was another novel and then right. it became this mm-hmm. so your research now is pretty is a pretty deep dive and do you have the structure of the story yet or you oh, just, I do. you yeah. do so you know yeah. where you're going to hang all of
1: this yeah and so because so i have music in this book Wow. because there's, there's a lot of failed musicians who open up a tutoring center so tutoring centers are really interesting because you have really smart people who want to make more money than to work in a public school or a private school and you will when you work for a pri- for-profit tutoring company and if you're very good you can make multi-million dollars
2: so it's like the best teachers are in those places
1: exactly, the irony of it
2: Yeah, but really so ironic.
1: they have really good degrees but they don't all end up there because that was their goal in life Usually, their goal in life was to be an opera singer. It was to be a poet.
2: So you're focusing on the school itself, the school, and families and the were, tutors. And is it all taking place around the world? the world? All over the world. All over the wow. world.
1: Because this is where I come clean on the tri- on the trilogy and say, so what does it mean to be Korean right. all over the world, in the diaspora? How does it affect us? Because diaspora is such an interesting concept because sometimes people literally have to leave their country because of war, right? And there are
2: how many people now that uh, that are being reported by the UN?
1: 68.5 million people who are, are displaced, displaced around displaced. the world, right? So sometimes you have to leave because you have a dictator and they're trying to chemically spray your people, right? Right? Or burn down your government like the Rohingya Muslims or burn down your houses. Just You just have to leave now. This is happening in former Burma. So you have that situation or you can just say you know what this is the pits there's a lot of gangs in my country i'm going to get out because i have a son and they're trying to target him and so then you leave the honduras right? right and you who would blame you for doing this
2: well there are people who blame them oh yes of and that's course that's the that's the sadness and the horror that we're going through right
1: now absolutely so what i'm trying to figure out is when you have to leave or when you do leave why why do you leave and right. then once you get there how much do you change, and how much do you change other people? Because that's the thing that people don't often talk about: is that there's an effect of immigration on people who are there, on the natives.
2: You know, I, I'm, I don't mean to keep referring to myself, but I li- we live in a city made filled with immigrants here in, oh, in, yeah. in in Miami, and I was an elementary school kid living in a little Jewish shtetl called Miami Beach. Right. When all of a sudden there was an influx of Cubans right. who were fleeing Castro. Mm-hmm. Completely changed my life and the life of everybody living in this little shtetl. And then more so changing the life in the entire county, in the entire city, right. I think for the very best. Because it made Miami a much more interesting place than what it would have been if it were just a sleepy southern town at that point. So. You're right. I mean, I see exactly what you're saying in terms of the And I love that.
1: I love yeah. the chemistry of it. I love how we change something. And I'm, I'm trying to understand the good parts as well as the bad parts. But one of the things that's also happening is around the world there's changes, like right now with technology. So all around the world we have these great disruptions of e- the economy and industry. And what's happening is we are all afraid. And all this fear is making us behave in ungracious ways.
2: Well put. I think that, you know, we're also seeing... I think we're in the biggest period of change in my life that I can remember mm-hmm. geopolitically. Yes. I mean, you're just seeing a shift going on. In, and I think a lot of it has to do with displacement. And, and the displacement is a lot of our making yeah. to, to a large extent. Um, there's been recently so much interesting literature written and novels written about you know, f- the sense of displacement. The one that comes right to mind for me, which I really loved, was Exit West. Sure, hamid He's amazing. Yeah, it
1: yeah. was a really
2: fabulous book. And he talks about people being on the road. It's, but what he does is he uses that great... The doors. The, yeah, the doors. So yeah. you don't actually have to be on the road with them. Right. You end up seeing where they are, which is really very, very interesting.
1: That's a great allegory.
2: Yeah. I just think that this conversation that we're having is, the. it shows the power of literature just in and of itself. The fact that we're able to talk about these issues and these things. So the next obvious thing is, so what? The, once you know what you know, and you've written about what you've written about, and you know the political strains that were, suffering right now what is the role of a writer at this point beyond just writing is there an additional role that you have
1: I try to speak about things that matter to me even though I'm afraid I think that the reason why I didn't talk very much when I was growing up is because I was afraid and I was afraid of censure I was afraid of sounding foolish and I think I still have all these fears. It isn't like I'm that much older and better. (laughs) I just had more classes on learning how to talk to people and I've certainly read more information. And I do feel a little more confident that I will be able to convey my idea. That said, I still feel afraid of people being angry with me. That said, whatever platform I'm given, I really do try to persuade people to have greater compassion for those who have no representation. And only because I feel very connected with those people. I come from those people.
2: Well, and watching you more than once do that, I can say that that is sort of the highest calling that you can have because you do it in a way in which it's inclusive. You You don't do it in a way in which you make people angry. You do it in a way in which you provoke standing ovations and you bring oh, people together. Thank you. And I think that is a rarity today. And I hope that you will continue to do this. And I hope that your voice, I'm so glad you started talking. And I hope your voice is with us, as I know it will be, for oh, thank you years not. and years to come. And, Min, it's just phenomenal having you here today with me. And, you know, um, I just hope that we have a chance to see each other soon. I hope that book comes out fast. Okay, <laughs> I'll work on it. <laughs> Please go home and write right now.
1: Okay, I should be writing right now, actually.
2: <laughs> well, Min Jin Lee, uh, welcome and thank you for being on The Literary Life. And um, those of you out there, you better read Pachinko um, because you will be missing something that is really important if you don't. Thank you all for being here, and thank, thank you, you, Min. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts and also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.